Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Good morning. Welcome. We are honored that you chose to worship with us. We are in week three of our series, Best Ever. So I am going to be reading today's text. So if you want to follow along on the screen or on your message card or in your good old trusty Bible, um, I'm going to be reading Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Somebody say amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord today. And uh, delighted you're here to worship with us. If you are new with us in any capacity, thank you so much for being here. Uh, We are in week three of this series called Best Ever. And um, there's subjects that we're communicating uh, and communicating about uh, taking advantage of essentially what happens in our culture. And uh, before we kick in, I just want to say, David, how appreciative I am of you leading worship today, David. Sincerely, man. Come on, just let him know how much you appreciate him being here. Um. My friend stuck, he stayed at my house last night. We had a great time talking late, uh, probably later than expected. I should have not kept him up because he had to be here at rehearsal at 7. But uh, David is uh, an amazing, amazing young man uh, who actually serves in a ministry that I served at before we came uh, for relaunch here at Dwelling Place. And uh, just such a, not only is an excellent musician, very gifted, very detail-oriented, but he is an amazing anointed worshiper. And uh, I think you could sense that. Amen did an amazing job. So David, you are home. We appreciate so much your ministry today. Um, If you are following along in your message card, we are going to talk today about the subject that I'm just entitling, Best Sexual Shaping Ever. We could also use this phrase, sexual formation. The first time I saw pornography, I was 10 years old. I went to a local swimming pool And it was in my neighborhood, and uh, a friend brought me into the bathroom, and he opened up a penthouse magazine. And when I opened the penthouse magazine, I remember as a 10-year-old or 11, somewhere around there, this adrenaline rush over my body. I mean, it was an adrenaline that I'd never felt in my previous 10 years. And I felt this sense of attraction, straight desire, but then I felt this sense of shame and feelings that I'd never felt before in my life. So first... First time I saw porn, 10 years old. Second time I saw porn, I was in middle school. And I was at a friend's house, and his name was Justin. And he, uh, his, his parents weren't there at the time. And he said, come into my dad's closet. And he grabbed the pile of magazines, and he said, have you ever seen any of this? And I said, I have not seen any of this. And as I began to open up these images, again, this sense of adrenaline overtook my body. This sense of such desire and attraction, yet at the same time, this overwhelming condemnation and guilt. The third time I saw uh, pornography was a magazine. Pamela Anderson uh, had done Playboy, and uh, she had modeled for Playboy, and a friend of mine said, have you ever seen Pamela Anderson nude? 
And I said, I have not. And again, I looked at this image and there was this flood again of emotions, flood of desire, yet shame. So my entire intake of pornography was about 10 images in my first 15 years of life. 10 images. Now I want you to contrast that to today's generation where teenagers, adolescent minds are marinating in violent, not images, but movements, videos, engagement, and allowing this misogynistic violence culture towards women to ultimately find its way into their heart, to their psyche, to their mind. See, in Western culture today, we have a different reality as it relates to sex. There was an article that went in the New York Times, the magazine, and the article was what teenagers are learning from online porn. And uh, I, I should say this, I think everyone's able, uh, but parents, you understand by now what subject we're talking about. So that is a, just a, a precursor to the message. If you desire to use our, stu- our children's ministry, you're more than welcome to do so. But he begins to talk about this controversial subject of pornography, and that is very controversial in my world because when this article came out, it was like the first time that some parents woke up and realized the reality of what their kids are facing. Well, it talks about a class that Americans are now putting their kids through called porn literacy. Porn literacy. The truth about pornography. And it was designed, this class, to reduce sexual and um, dating violence. This is what the article says. For around two hours each week, for five weeks, the students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors in high school, take take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, queer sex, relationships... And body images are portrayed, or in the case of consent, not portrayed in porn. Again, that's from the New York Times. Talks about porn literacy. If you want to see a, a stronger statement, you can't. This is it. Welcome to the success of the sexual revolution. Okay, The sexual revolution has been very successful in our nation. This, by the way, church, is a seismic shift in participation in sexuality that's unprecedented in church history, probably human history. The sexual revolution was defined by Mary Eberstadt in a book called Adam and Eve After the Pill. And um, she talks in there about how this word, this phrase, was, came about, this sexual revolution. She says these words. The sexual revolution was the destigmatization, that's key, and the demystification of non-marital sex. The destigmatization and the demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction, watch this, of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. The destigmatization and the demystification of non-marital sex is exactly what has happened in our culture today. Now, I want to say this revolution has been very effective. If you define a revolution by the overthrow of something previous, this is probably the most successful overthrow or revolution we have certainly seen in our nation, but maybe the world. In many ways, not many people realize this, that the Jesus movement or the Jesus revolution started at the same time the sexual revolution started. And in many ways, we can say that the sexual revolution defeated or overtook the Jesus movement, the Jesus people, the Jesus revolution. If you look at the stats regarding porn right now in America, premarital sex, abortion, divorce, cohabitation, living together before marriage, Christians and non-Christians live almost identical lives. Identical. Stats are the same. Now, most Christians don't do this with a haphazard attitude, like, oh, I'm just going to... No, but they do it. And they do it with a sense of shame. 
And they do it with a deep sense of guilt. And they do it with a deep sense of emotional instability. It is not an exaggeration to say that sex is eating us alive. It's eating us alive. It's producing shame in people. It's confusing our idea of authority. Teachers wonder why in the world my elementary kids act so differently. Well, when you've been marinating your brain in porn, misogynistic porn, how in the world are you supposed to respect an older lady? Right? I was just told after this gathering right here in Woodstock this week, on Tinder dating app, a 30-year-old met with a 13-year-old and got arrested. And he went for the reason to really actually go on a date. But the 13-year-old said, hey, I'm here. And he said, you, you should, you, you, you're crazy. You should have, I mean, you could have gotten kidnapped. Well, her sister heard the word kidnapped, went into the restaurant, called the cops. Of course, 12 Woodstock police come up. And he's like, no, I did nothing wrong. I had no sexual language. But this 13-year-old wants to, to get on the Tinder app, right? This is the culture we live in. So I want you to understand, it's right here, right? Uh, we even saw this week, our principal, right? one of the principals of Cherokee County Schools, both elementary schools and middle school, was caught in, in child pornography, right? Meeting with children, right? He's not the current one, please understand my words, but he has been here in our, our culture, right? In our city. So we're talking about something that's very, very clear in our culture. Something that is very, very wreaking havoc, so to speak. Not only our culture, but it's wreaking havoc on our marriages. It's producing guilt. It kills community. And so the question is kind of being begged is what is the church to do about the, this issue in our culture? Like what is the church going to say to this issue in our moment in history? Well, I want to start by saying one of the great lies that we have believed is that all sin is the same. We've heard that before, right? All sin is the same. Well, that's not actually what the Bible teaches. It teaches that sexual sin is a different kind of sin. 1 Corinthians 6 makes that very clear. Sexual sin is unlike other types of sin. You say, Craig, what do you mean? Every other temptation in the Bible, it says resist temptation. Resist temptation. Sexual immorality, it says flee sexual immorality. Resist temptation. Flee sexual immorality. It does something to us, sexual immorality does. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking to a church with a ton of spiritual power, but almost no spiritual character. Isn't that the world we find ourselves in today, largely in the evangelical world? Listen, the gifts of the Spirit are not meant to give us a shortcut to maturity. you got to understand that. The gifts of the Spirit, one of the dangers in our churches and the dangers in our Western world is we expect the gifts of the Spirit to quickly do what only the fruit of the Spirit can do over the long haul. And so we've got to understand that God desires to walk in holiness. He wants us to walk upright in the depraved generation. But what that means is the Apostle Paul is now writing to Corinth and he's saying, hey, you've got to use your bodies in a way that honors God. It, it needs to be structured in a way that is, is not inappropriate because if you engage your body in these acts, this is what he says, it actually deforms you out of the image of Jesus and distorts you into the image of the world. Let's listen to his words. He said, I have the right to do anything. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. You say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, Paul said, but I won't be mastered by anything. He said, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food. I understand God will destroy them both. The body, this is countercultural, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. But the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. By his power, God raised Jesus the Lord from the dead. And watch this, and he will raise us also. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? He said, never, never. Don't you know, obviously not, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. Watch this. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. They're outside the body. 
But he whoever sins sexually, watch this, sins against their own body. Sins against themselves. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Watch this. Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, that's one of the most fascinating passages about Christian ethics. That term body there is the Greek word sarx. And so it's often translated flesh into the English language. But it's actually sarxis. And the best translation we could come to of, of, of sarxis is self. So it could be translated this way. He who sins sexually sins against themselves. All other sins are done outside the body. But if you sin sexually, you sin against yourself. So we are what? What? Watch this. When we sin sexually, we are bending our hearts, we're bending our wills, we're bending our body, we're bending our desires away from the purposes of God, away from the desires of God, and towards destruction and dysfunction. And what Paul tells us is that sin has enough combustive force. Those of you who live in sexual brokenness at some point, you know this. It has enough combustible force to literally incinerate Christians' consciences. It can incinerate their conscience. It has enough to power behind it to cut off all religious devotion in people's hearts and lives. It has a power behind it for people to break vows that they've had for 30, 40, 50 years. Literally, sexual power and immorality can overcome anything in its path. It has combustive force. So we're left in this cultural moment here in America where the sexual revolution has changed us. Mary goes on, Eberstadt, she says, First and contrary to conventional depiction, the sexual revolution has proved a disaster for many men and women. And second, its weight has fallen heaviest on the smallest and weakest shoulders in society. Who? Children. And it's given extra strength to those who are already strong and are predatory. Right? That's what sexuality is. That's what the, the rampant sexuality and immorality we see in our culture. It's preying off of the weakest and giving strength to those that are already predatory. That's the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Maybe you're here today and this is the first time you've been back to church in a little while. I'm going to say thank you for coming. (laughs) Okay. Um, You either came today because you knew we were talking about this or you came and you had no idea. (laughs) Okay. And you're like, whoa. Okay. Stick with us. Follow with us. But I do want to say, I have no desire whatsoever, not one single aim today. I'm not here to produce shame for anybody. No shame. Shame to be cast away. But I am here to speak clarity to the issues that we face as a culture because the reality is most of the families, most of the individuals in this room, you have dealt with this or are dealing with this in some way. So we desperately need biblical clarity. Very few pastors preach on this today, right? It's very taboo in the Western world. Very few will talk, right? Because in an effort to grow our churches or in an effort to not deal with the demons that are prevalent in our culture, we don't want to speak that truth. Well, I want to tell you, we approach it today out of sincerity and compassion of the restorative power of Jesus. But what I want to do is I want to talk about how disciples are shaped into God's good gift in the area of sexuality. I want to talk today about how God shapes His disciples in the area of sexuality. Now, when you talk about these issues, you get two major overreactions. Anytime you start having this conversation, you get people that end up on two ends of the spectrum. The first response is a response of fear. People just say, oh, sex is horrible. You know, it's bad. Avoid it. You know, uh, don't, it have, you know, don't have premarital sex. It's awful. Save it for your spouse. You know? I always had a problem with that. Sex is horrible, so save it for your spouse. You know, like... <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Like, we... This whole... And I'm not beating the purity movement up, but, man, we put rings on fingers and, and tried to have willpower and give people willpower to say, stay free. That really didn't work. 
okay? That didn't work, no matter what rings we put on and how many times we walked to an altar, okay? It really didn't work. But there's people that have this fear. Now, there's probably not anyone maybe in history that has more tangibly demonstrated the fear of human sexuality than one of the greatest Christian scholars of all time. His name is Jerome. Jerome was born in modern-day Croatia, I should say, in 347. He lived to 420. He was 73 years of age. He is probably the greatest Christian scholar in history in his 30s. In his mid-30s, the reason he was such a great figure because he was used for Bible translation. He spent 30 years of his life in sublimation to the flesh, translating the Hebrew and the Greek into the Latin version of the Bible. That Latin version of the Bible would be the Bible used by all churches worldwide for a thousand years. To say that this man is instrumental in the work of God's redemption is the understatement of the century. Very instrumental. But he struggled with lust. Jerome struggled with lust. Here's his words. I was plagued by sexual fantasies. I often found myself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. He fasted to the point of starving. His flesh was starving in an attempt to control the temptations. And here's what he said. My face was pale with fasting. But though my limbs were as cold as ice, my mind was burning with sexual desire. The fires of lust kept bubbling up before me when my flesh was as good as dead. He said, literally, I tried to do what Jesus said. Cut off your eye, cut off your arm. And even when my flesh was as good as dead, my mind was overwhelmed with the fires of lust. It was eating me alive. And now he realized, oh, this wasn't actually just a body issue. This was my heart issue. So instead, he turned his passions to study Hebrew. So he started in a form of sublimation to try to translate the scriptures. He writes the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the, the Latin version of, of the Bible that you and I hold. He wrote all of that, but that didn't transform his attitudes towards sex. He began to, later in his life, assign spiritual values to women. Sad, sad, it really is. But he, he gave 100 points to virgins. He gave 60 points for widows and 30 points for those who were married. Married. He ranked marriage just above fornication. And he said, I praise marriage, but I praise it because they produce, marriage produces me virgins. And then he would give prison-like rules to moms that were raising virgins. He would give prison-like rules to make sure those children stay virgins. He went on to say, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. You see the fear? Well, that fear crept inside the church. People say, well, why do Catholics have to be celibate priests? Because of this. This is where Catholic priests stood up and said, okay, we've got to create some new rules. Out of fear, a priest must be completely celibate. In fact, at that point in history, in church history, all of a sudden people in succeeding leaders and succeeding centuries issued edicts forbidding sex on Thursdays. They said to the Christian church, you can't have sex with your wife on Thursdays because it's the day of Christ's arrest. Then they forbid people to have sex on Fridays because that was the day of the Lord's uh, crucifixion. Then they forbid married couples to have sex on Saturday because that was in honor of the Blessed Virgin. And then you couldn't have sex on Sunday because that was in honor of the departed saints. Wednesdays sometimes made the list, as did the 40 days leading up to Easter, the 40 days leading up to Christmas, and the 40 days leading up to Pentecost. All the feast days of Jewish history couldn't have sex, couldn't have sex when a woman was on her period. One pope assigned a painter, Daniel Vescuvius, he went into the, to the uh, chapel, the Sistine Chapel, and he began to paint clothes on the nudes that were in the chapel. And then a priest stood up and said, every priest has to remain celibate. It escalated so much in her church history until the gay theologian John Boswell said this. He estimated there were only 44 days a year which remained available for God-blessed marital sex. 
That's when fear crept in. That's where fear took us on this side of the communion, or, or continuum, I should say. And I just want to say to that that the sex drive is not actually given by in, the enemy. It's given by God. And when the sex drive, since it's God-given, it will be God-gladdened when it's God-guided. It will be God-gladdened when it's God-guided. So this negative attitude, watch this. I'm going to give you some formulas today. produces this formula. Moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. But that doesn't work. Moral standards plus willpower does not equal holiness. It hasn't worked. It's not worked then. It didn't work in church history. It's not working now. Philip Yancey, my favorite theologian, he writes, he says, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive point of view on sexuality. Watch this. Outside the church, people think of God as the great spool sport of human sexuality, not its inventor. In a sex-saturated society, even true believers find it hard to accept that tradition Christian morality offers the fullest, most satisfying life. He said, the Pope utters pronouncements, denominations issue position papers, and many Christians ignore them and follow the lead of the rest of society. Surveys reveal little differences between church attenders and non-attenders in the rates of premarital intercourse and living together cohabitation. Surveys also show that millions of people have left the church in disgust over its hypocrisy about sex, especially when priests and ministers fail to practice what they preach. That's what he says. So if we're really honest, this formula of desire plus ultimate willpower equals, or moral standards plus willpower equals success or purity, it's not really that way at all. I think the formula is moral standards plus willpower has equaled failure. Failure. And that's what this has produced, and it's produced shame and guilt. So that's one side of the continuum. Now, the fear of dangers of sex. Now, on the other side, we have people who are sick, sexual libertarians. I call these people, you could put freedom or fascination. People fascinated by sex. Just let themselves go. Do whatever you want. You have total freedom. Let your body go. This is in our culture, by the way, what we now term sex positivity. That's what this is called in our culture, sex positivity. The term sex positivity was coined by a man named Wilhelm Reich. He said the sex positive movement does not in general make moral or ethical distinctions between heterosexual or homosexual sex or masturbation regarding these matters, watch this, or choices as matters of personal preference. Notice that. He goes on, and the sexologist Carol Queen, she's a sociologist, but she says it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each that we each grow, watch this, our own passions on a different medium. That instead of having two or three or even a half dozen sexual orientations in the future, we should be thinking in terms of millions. Millions of sexual orientations. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles, even as we acknowledge that some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. People say, why are you so uptight about uh, sex? It's just a natural appetite. You're thirsty? Get a drink. You're hungry? You eat a vegan kale salad with organic chickpeas. If you live in Midtown. You're aroused? You have sex with someone or you masturbate? And if, if pornography helps the masturbation, then do it. Then engage it. Do whatever you want to do. So the formula on this side of the continuum is altogether different. Now the formula here is this. Desire plus consent equals freedom. Desire plus consent equals freedom. But my question is, go to the next slide. Is 
this really making us free? I look around culture and I'm thinking, are we really free? Are people more fulfilled when they let themselves go? Another article in the New York Times called What's Lust Got to Do With is written by a woman who was confused why single women that were beautiful were having sex with men who were losers. They didn't want to have sex with them, but they constantly had sex with them. And she's writing this article thinking, why in the world are women doing this? Why are they having sex with men that they, they don't want to sleep with? As a result, she goes on to write a book, and she says this. She said, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. She said, we portray it as fun, and we pretend it's fun, but people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. That is why Britain just appointed a loneliness minister. And I said, time out! Britain appointed a loneliness minister? They did, y'all! This is the guy's image. Go show him the image. The dude on the right is the loneliness minister of Britain. They have a loneliness minister. The only reason America doesn't have one is because we can't afford one, or we would already have one too. A loneliness minister. So listen, all of the sex isn't producing freedom. All of the sex is not producing fulfillment. It's not producing connection. It's producing loneliness. It's producing more brokenness. Nancy Piercy, in a book called Love Thy Body, should be a required reading for parents. Love thy body. She says this. She says the same bleak view of sexuality is included in even young children. A video put out by Children's Television Workshop. America, widely used in sex education classes, defines sexual relations as simply something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. There's no mention of marriage. There's no mention of family. No mention of love. No mention of commitment. No hint that sex has a richer purpose than sheer sensual gratification. So my take of this formula is not, I got this desire and then consent equals freedom. My take is that desire plus consent has equaled disillusionment. Disillusionment. And we as a culture are so confused. We're confused. We're oversexed and we don't know what sex is supposed to be. So I had this thought this week. When you get rid of the creator, this is the argument of Romans 1, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of accountability, you get rid of people answering for their choices in life. When you get rid of people having to give an account for the choices of their life, you remove the fear of God. When you remove the fear of God, the fear of God is the beginning, Proverbs 1, of all wisdom. So when you have no fear of God and you have no wisdom, all you are left with as a nation is total, utter confusion. We don't know what's left, right. We don't know if we're boy, girl, we don't know if we're trans, we're not. We don't know what our orientation, we have no idea. We don't know what's up and down, what's left and right. We are utterly confused. And this is the moment Jesus has called us to minister in. This is the moment Jesus has saw that we would live. So somewhere between this paradigm of fear, we can't go there, and somewhere between this paradigm of freedom, Jesus inserts himself into the continuum. And when Jesus inserts himself into the, community, uh, the, to the continuum, his, his vision of sex, watch this, is both in the beauty but also the power of human sexuality. See, Jesus actually offers us a discipleship in this area. And it's a vision of what I'm calling sexual shaping or formation. Sexual shaping or formation. And you've got to understand, for the Christian, listen to me, when Jesus talks about morality, it's not just communicating what we need to do as believers or what we shouldn't do as believers. What Christian morality, Jesus actually asked us to ask us as believers, what I should be asking and begging to be asking is, who am I becoming 
in light of living in this way? Who am I becoming in light of living in this pattern? Don't say what's right or wrong. Bad question. It's who am I becoming? What patterns in my life are creating? And do I like that end goal? In other words, Jesus' words speak at our habits. It speaks at the direction of our life, the direction of our hearts, our motives. So this is where we see Jesus inserting himself into this continuum of fear and fascination with sex is that they're shaping and formation. Now let me show you a passage here. Paul is he's pastoring another church community called Thessalonica. And I want you to hear these words and let them wash over you. Just let them wash over you. This is what he said. He said, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, for the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and we warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but rejects God, the very God, who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now, y'all, this is such a rich text, we could spend a month in it, but I see two primary things about sexual shaping. Are you ready? Sexual shaping is about learning to control your body and submitting to the Holy Spirit. That's what sexual formation for Jesus is. Learning to control your body and submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now watch that. There's a part we do, accountability boundaries. We, we, we put our bodies and we practice communally and individually, formatively, right? Individual formation, communal formation. We put practices in place in our life that enable us to have our heart bent towards God, not away from the things of God. That's our part, but then it's the Holy Spirit's part to lead God and empower us in those commitments. To walk in freedom. Now listen, all the warnings in the Bible about sex are that sex is good, it's not bad. Sex is amazing, it's not horrible. And sex, it seeks to protect. Sex does something that's both powerful and fragile. Isn't it amazing that sex is probably the most powerful thing in our culture, yet the most fragile thing in our culture? Both powerful and fragile. Listen, sex is not designed by God to repress freedom. No, he wants you to experience it in the the confines of marriage. So my question is, is, well, how do we learn, Craig, to to control ourselves and submit to the Holy Spirit? Well, first and foremost, I want to present to us that we have to have a right view of Christian sexuality. So it starts with the right vision. Now, I don't know, I know this seems somewhat simple, but for a culture that's obsessed with sex and uses sex to sell everything from Hardy's burgers to hairbrushes, my kids, there's no way my kid could watch a Hardy's commercial. I mean, have you seen these women on Hardee's? I mean, every, there's breasts on everything in our culture. It sells everything. Everything. Look at the halftime show, right? How many crotch shots can you get? Right? I mean, it sells everything. 80, 80 million views within like 20 minutes after the Super on YouTube of the halftime show within 20 minutes of it ending. I mean, it's crazy, right, in our culture. So, so if it sells everything, have we ever stepped back and just said, what is sex? What is sex? What is it? What is sex? Well, Christian sexuality is really founded on four pillars. I don't have time to go into all of them deeply, elaborate on them, but I will come back to them in a few months, I promise. We're going to come back to them. But here's four pillars of Christian sexuality. Number one, sex is pointing to a greater reality. In other words, it's the story we long for. Listen to me. In your heart, watch this, when you are grope, what you are groping for when you're going out sexually. What you're groping for in your sexuality is you're reaching out with a desire to to someone else. And when that desire to someone else 
is, is engaged, it's so that you desire to give yourself fully and to take hold of someone fully. In other words, you want to be fully known and fully accepted for who you are. That's the desire God puts in there sexually. So you say, Craig, in the Garden of Eden, watch this, they were naked and not ashamed. But in our culture, we are naked and ashamed. And even though we have our clothes off, we're still ashamed because we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of rejection. So even though we're unclothed in in 21st century America, we still have the same shame. Because we don't want to be rejected. But let me tell you something. The gospel, the story we long for, is that the only story and the only true story of a God who sees us as we are, who loves us as we are, we can be honest before him. We don't have to, we don't have to keep the clothes on. We can pull back the covers. We can be honest with God. And God yet seeing us for who we are, he loves us, embraces us, speaks life to us. And yet sex then becomes, what's this, a physical reminder that the union we ache for actually points us beyond ourselves to another story. That's the first pillar of Christian sexuality. In the book Rumors of Another World, the author writes, the very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that's been severed. Watch this. Freud diagnosed this, the deep pain within, for sex as a longing for union with a parent. He talks about how you, for those of you psychology majors, had had this disconnect with your parent and your, your, that your sex drive the rest of your life is actually coming from the union with mom. Jung, theologian, discussed and diagnosed the longing for union with the opposite sex. That's what you feel. But for the Christian, the Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. It points to a deeper story. It points to a more meaningful story. So your spirit, watch this, as you drive towards another person in intimacy, you're actually driving yourself for unconditional love from God. Second thing that Christian sexuality holds itself to or pillar is it gives us a vision of holistic integration. Now, I want you to see this. Holistic integration. Most of sexuality in our culture has chopped up sex as a whole. When you chop up sex as a whole and don't see it as a union of heart, soul, body, strength, then all you're left with is sexual technique. You're left with the physicality of sex. When we get rid of intimacy and a holistic vision of sex, heart, soul, mind, and strength, we just chop it up to physical nature of it, all we're left with is an obsession with sexual technique, which, by the way, detaches sex from its function and purpose. That's where we are as a culture. It's why we live in a culture that's obsessed with sexual videos, sexual books, sexual manuals, and none of them address the deeper issues that we're longing within. In the movie The Beautiful Mind, many of you may have seen it, the brilliant actor John Nash, he approaches a beautiful girl in a bar and he says, listen, listen, babe, um, I don't have the words to say whatever's necessary to get you in my bed. So can we just pretend that I said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? Now we see that. And what do we do? We know sexuality can't be reduced to that. But that's how we view sex in our culture. That's how it's being marketed to us. That's how it's being communicated. And she slaps him in the face, which she should. Because we know it shouldn't be reduced to that. Sex is meant to be a picture of whole life integration. Whole life. Body, soul, spirit, mind, strength, other-centered, sacrificial love. I'm giving of myself. Lust wants to get. Love wants to give. God so loved the world that he got his world. No, he gave himself. Why? Because love is other-centered. It's sacrificial in its very nature. It wants to give. It's about holistic integration, not splintering, not fracturing of sex. That's why in our culture, listen, all the sex is actually making us lonelier, not more connected. 
It's actually making us more disconnected and less happier because it separates from the deeper issues. Thirdly, a Christian view of sexuality is that sexuality is tied to our transformation. Now, this is controversial, but you got to hear me. It's, it is controversial because I know there's a tension here. And Christianity actually preaches what I call a chaste tension. We actually believe, listen to me, that when you say no to your sexual impulses, when you say no to them and you resist the natural desires, that action actually has the capacity to produce spiritual growth and deep Christian formation and character internally. That there is this tension I live as a single person of transformation where if I will say no to it, it the tension that God created it for, I mean, for is, is to repress the worst in us and to release the best in us because it points us towards love. It's about self-control. It's about self-respect. It's about learning to think of other people, not just myself. And I know this, listen, I know this can be very tempting when you look at the world and you see your friends having what looks like a lifestyle of spring break and you just think, hey, from 18 to 28, I just want to let myself go. Why can't I just let myself go? I'll get back. Why can't I just release? But the tension to say no is actually what's forming you to be Christ-like. The tension to say no to it is actually, instead of giving in to the pleasure, but actually, actually giving in to the pleasure deforms your character. So it's, it's actually training our instincts, not chasing our instincts. You say, why? Because one of these pathways leads to sacrificial love and the other one doesn't. Here's the fourth pillar of Christian sexuality. It's a witness to the world. It's a witness to the world. What do you mean it's a witness to the world? It's meant to be a picture of Jesus and his church having sex. The church is supposed to be a counterculture of love and respect, a culture where people aren't commodified, where we look below the surface judgments of more than just their body. We're supposed to be a counterculture of sexual wholeness and a culture of sexual brokenness. It should be a testimony to the world. You know what the early, the early, um, the early non-believers said about the Christians? This is written down. Third century. This is what they said. Christians share their table, but they won't share their beds. What a witness to the world. They're making wider their seats of hospitality to invite us into their lives, but they won't sleep with us. That's a witness to the world. That's a witness of sexual wholeness and a culture of sexual brokenness. Listen, I've said before, but I'm going to say it again. The only way you know that Jesus is back from the dead and you have eternal life in our moment is that you're sexually pure and you're financially generous. Why? Because our whole culture says get as much as you can. And when you have a willingness to share and forego the pleasures of the earth, you tell everybody else, I believe in another world, not just this one. That's how you know you're saved. That's how you know the Spirit of God resides in you. Now, in light of those four pillars of Christian spirituality or sexuality, I'm sure that no one in here has any struggles. Right? You just... Preach those pillars and then we just dismiss. Or maybe 15 years of pastoring has taught me, and the questions of counseling has taught me that there might be some tension points in this room. There might be some tension points. So I'm going to address for the next few moments I want to preach on porn, I want to preach on masturbation, dating, cohabitation, and premarital sex. So let me first jump into porn. I want to look quickly but loosely. I know of no other struggle, listen to me, that plagues and produces shame for more men and women than the issue of pornography. Probably the biggest shame producer. John, Jen Mesa gives a, a commentary of how porn distorts us. And she says this. She says, the more society loses touch with the reality, especially in relationships, the more people do not know how it's supposed to look or be, how to react with other people. And then they turn to more porn. They look at the fantasy and believe it should be the reality. They retreat further into the illusion 
Watch this, because porn can never be real. It does not work in real life. Porn is a sickness. Porn is a sickness. Chris Hedges in his phenomenal book, Empire of Illusion, he says this. He says, the largest users of internet porn are between the ages of 12 and 17. And porn producers increasingly target adolescents. Porn targets the mid-teens to the mid-20s. That's true, by the way. When they ask porn stars, what's the number one lie you had to do in your industry? They tell them that when we're in our 20s, we have to say that we're teenagers. We have to say that we're teenagers. We have to pose as teenagers in our scenes. You say, why? Because the number one search porn phrase in 2018 in the entire world was teen. Teen. I want to see teens having sex. So this is our culture. This is the first time in history where young people have been raised by marinating their brains for hours upon hours in violent, misogynistic images of sex. Now, I want to ask you a question. Y'all think that has any formational impacts on the next hundred years of our culture? Oh, my gosh. The issues we're going to deal with as a culture, formatively, of these adolescent minds that have been shaped by hours of oversaturation, you say, does it bring foundational impacts? Yeah, let me talk to you a few, few of those impacts. Porn, number one, impacts ourselves. It impacts ourselves. Did you know that porn actually rewires your brain? Our, our neural pathways and patterns. Sexuality produces dopamine. Dopamine is in the reward center of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. When dopamine is released, we say, woo! And then your brain creates a neural pathway that says, do it again, do it again. Do it again. And dopamine is released. It says, do it again. When you ejaculate with dopamine at the same time, so if you masturbate while looking at the pixel, it increases that pathway by 50 times the power. So when ejaculation accompanies the pixel, that pathway is 50 times stronger. The release, the overflooding of dopamine and serotonin in the brain. And then what happens is, Just like any other addiction, what happens? Just like drug addiction, the same images don't produce the same dopamine. So what do you do? You got to go deeper into new images. You got to find new women. You got to find new men. You got to find new acts. You got to find whatever. You got to go deeper and deeper, and you go searching for more enemy or more images. Now listen, the the reward center of the brain is so closely associated with violence and competition. So when that regular porn doesn't work anymore, you see porn getting increasingly violent because sociologists say this: the brain begins to fuse these two together. They use the phrase, what fires together, wires together. So I looked it up this week. The number one Pornhub video looked at worldwide this week is a girl. She looks, um, to me, 13 years old. I mean, younger. And she is strapped down onto the ground, and she's got something over her mouth, and it is a misogynistic desire to, to destroy this young body. That's the number one. That's the number one worldwide. Because violence becomes so closely associated with erotic functions and, and, and desire that in order now to be sexually aroused, it requires violence towards women. And kids are now raised on this, and it's a part of their thinking. And it affects our sexual taste. The brain's reward center doesn't know the difference between acceptable porn and cool porn. And that's not, by the way, my term. That's the culture's term, acceptable corn or, pool, or, or cool porn, not pool corn. Uh, so neurologists use this phrase... What fires together, wires together, until ultimately our pathways associate sex and violence deeply. Here's number two. Porn impacts our relationships, not just ourselves, our relationships. In a recent study, watch this, of 16 to 18-year-olds in our nation, 99% of them reported learning how to have sex by watching porn. So 99% of teenagers learned how to have sex by watching porn. 
Many women say they were pressured to play out the scripts that their male partners had learned from porn. And when they have to, they're badgered in to play these scripts, they had, had to have sex in uncomfortable positions. Um, they had to fake sexual responses and noises. They had to make certain noises based upon what the guy had seen. And they had to consent to painful acts that hurt them physically. Porn's hurting ourselves. It's hurting our relationships. Number three, porn is distorting our culture. Our culture, it's producing depression in men and women like never before. There's deep amounts of addiction. Porn sites, listen, receive more traffic regularly than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 35% of all internet, porno- internet downloads globally is porn. 35%. Porn is a global right now $97 billion industry with $12 billion coming from America alone. The most searched term last year uh, in porn was lesbian. Lesbian was the most for 2019. The largest free porn site, which is Pornhub, this is what it received. You ready? 38 billion, 500 million site visits in 2019 alone. A new film is created in Southern California every 39 minutes. So another sex act is happening every 39 minutes. Again, you got to keep up with the addiction. Males make an average of $150 per scene. The females, if they're really good, make up to $800 a scene. Child porn generates $3 billion annually. Child porn. Most popular day to watch porn is Sunday. Over 116,000 searches in America for child porn every day. 116,000 in America per day for child porn. Let me show you a Pornhub graphic right quick. Number of years it took each product to gain 50 million users. Planes, flight took 68 years. 46 years on power, 18 years on ATM, 4 years on iPods. Facebook was 3 years. Pornhub got 50 million users in 19 days. 19 days. We are being deformed away from the image of Jesus and being distorted into the image of our culture. And rape culture then comes and violence comes towards women and porn use. 60% of all marriages that end have porn in them. Have porn in them. It's Pope John Paul II, he says this. He said, there's no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, it's that it shows far too little of that person. When you're looking at porn, you're not thinking about that person as a person. You're seeing them as an object of sensual gratification. You don't know what they're facing. You don't know what they had happened. You don't know what they ate for lunch that day before that scene. You're not seeing them as a person created in the image of God. You never think about that they have name. You know what the number one death reality is for the women who have have ultimately been in this industry? Suicide. Suicide. So we see them as objects, right? We don't see them as people. We see them as objects of pleasure. Well, you can see then, church, how watching hours and hours and hours of porn and violent porn, it's going to shape the way you think. It's going to shape your appetites. It's going to shape how you see the world. It's going to shape how you date. It's going to shape how you get into relationships. It's going to shape your friendships. It will shape everything in your life. That's why Scott Saul says gossip is the same as porn. You're getting off by objectifying someone else at their expense with no commitment on your part. It's no commitment. Now, porn is normally associated with another behavior called masturbation. That's the next point. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about masturbation. It's not in there. I've been asked before about the passage in the Old Testament that was in our reading actually this last week for our DPC Bible reading where the the person spills seed on the ground. Is this an issue of masturbation? It's actually an old form, archaic form of a type of marriage. So it's not. So the Bible doesn't address masturbation. But my boy C.S. Lewis does, so we're going with my boy C.S. Lewis, okay? Now... Augustine of Hippo, 
St. Augustine, one of the greatest church fathers, he had a definition of sin that we've talked about before. Here's what he called sin. Augustine of Hippo called sin incurvitus se. It's a Latin phrase that means incurvature of yourself. He said sin is love turned in on itself. And God is the divine chiropractor that tries to straighten us out to no longer just see ourselves. So I thought about that phrase, love, sin is love turned in on itself. Isn't that the whole temptation of love? It has this tendency to collapse in on itself. So here is C.S. Lewis, he's in England, he's writing an American young man. So please understand, he's writing an American young man, so it's going to be uh, heterosexual language. This also goes for homosexual, you get the point. It's also going to have male language, but it goes the same for female language, okay? And this is what he said. For me, he said, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite, which in lawful use, watch this, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and finally in children and even grandchildren, and it turns it back in on the man. Watch this, sending the man back into the prison of himself there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against that man ever getting out and uniting with a real woman. He's now stuck in the harem of the imaginary brides. For the harem is always accessible. She's always subservient. She calls no sacrifice. She has no adjustment. She can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions, which no real woman can ever rival. And among these shadowy brides, he's always adored. He's always the perfect lover for her. No demands made on his unselfishness. No mortification is ever imposed on on his vanity, and in the end, they become merely the medium, who, the women, the imaginary brides, in which he increasingly adores himself. That's love collapsing in on itself. That's masturbation. That's love falling in, taking me from other-centered to becoming self Centered. He goes on. He said, it's not only the faculty of love which is thus sterilized before it's back on itself, but also the faculty of imagination. I thought this was brilliant. He said, the true exercise of imagination, in my view, is to help us understand other people and to respond to, and in some of us, to produce art. But it also has a bad use. What? What does the imagination do? It provides for us in shadowy form a substitute for virtues, successes, distinctions, which, etc., which ought to be sought out there, which should be sought out in the real world. But what does it do? It turns it back in. Now watch this. Next, next slide. He, he goes on to say, Masturbation involves this abuse of the imagination in erotic matters and thereby encourages a similar abuse of it in all spheres. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prisons that we are born in, and masturbation is to be avoided at all, as all things are, to be avoided, which retard the process. The danger is that we've come to love the prison. So, so, so is masturbation wrong? That's the question I get as a pastor. Wrong question. I never say yes or no. I say, in light of you masturbating every day, who are you becoming? Do you like that person? Does that person look more like Jesus? So in light of the patterns of my life, what is masturbation doing to me? What's it doing in my life? What's actually happening? Remember, that's what Christians ask. So there's three concepts that stand out to me real quick. I'll just hit them. The harem within, abusing the imagination, and loving the prison. And the Bible says love is the exact opposite. It is other-centered. Ephesians 5.3, what does it say? But among you, may this not be a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So a mind filled with porn, and with relationships that are not real, based on money and subscription, then you're wiring my brain to be sexually aroused. Now I'm masturbating to violent images. What does that do? That just takes me deeper into my own prison to never get released, to never escape. It takes me deeper into myself, not leading me to freedom. So what does the Bible say, Craig? Don't masturbate? No. Who am I becoming and how am I being transformed formed by masturbation? Now, this leads me to enter into relationships, which is dating. 
Now, I can't point to a verse in Scripture in the Bible that says about dating. I can't do that, okay? This is an issue of wisdom. But let me point out something real quick. Dating is really um, a new concept. So in the 18th century and 19th century, it was all about arranged marriages. Then we moved to courtship. You know what courtship was? The, the, the husband was... Uh, the potential husband, was meeting the girl in the context of her family. And then we moved from courtship to dating. Now, the first time that dating appeared in American culture was 1914. Here's what the major change was. Young men didn't come to court the family. When you came to court the family, the family of the girl evaluated you as a man in terms of skill, suitability, and character. But now you took the young woman away from her parents so you couldn't be judged anymore on character, suitability, and skill. Instead, it was based on romance instead of friendship. You see the difference? And then it was based on spending money that you don't spend when you actually get married and being seen by other people around you in the dating scene that you won't have when you get married and having fun instead of character assessment. Well, that led to a hookup culture, which leads us to dating apps. Now, before you say people have dating apps, I just told you about the 13-year-old on Tinder, okay? 90-something million people are now users on Tinder, okay? That's just one of the dating apps in our nation. And um, I got to tell you, I've never been on the dating app, okay? I've never done, but I did have a friend, many friends and people that have been on dating apps. And one friend said to me, dating apps are like Amazon Prime to deliver you hot people. (laughs) Then I remember this article from a few years back on Vanity Fair. By the way, Vanity Fair is not, might I add, a Christian magazine. This article was called Tinder and Hookup Culture, The Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. I'm going to give you a few selected readings, and I hope you're staggered as much as I was. There have been two major transitions, the writer writes, in heterosexual mating in the last four million years. First was around 10,000 to 15,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution when we became less migratory, more settled. That led to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contract. And the second major transition is the rise of the internet, I say, hey, are you confused right now? It's because this thing has only happened one other time in human history. Okay, this whole idea of dating and how to find a mate, it's a major crux moment in the history of our nation. But my question is, who are we becoming by participating in dating apps? Let's read. Guys have this view of everything as a competition. He elaborates with his deep, assuring voice. Who slept with the best, hottest girls? With these dating apps, he says, you're kind of sort of prowling. You can like two or three girls at a bar, pick up the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. He said it's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up a hundred girls you've slept with in a year. This is the concept of dating. There's the concept of the Tinderella. I don't know if you know the Tinderella. Uh, by the way, in the 18 to 24 age group in our nation right now, it's reported over 60% of them are involved in Tinder. Okay, so I just want you to know that we're not, we're not just talking about things that don't matter. Tinderella is a girl you meet and land before midnight. Um, a, the Tinder king is the concept of a guy who can get a woman into the bed just via text messaging. You get more points if you do it just through the use of emojis. So if you can just use emojis and get her in your bed, you're even higher. One guy said this. He said, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over, but then they start wanting me to care more, and I just don't. He goes on to say, it's rare for a woman of our generation to meet a man who treats her like a priority instead of an option. One girl says this. One girl says, they start out with send me nudes, and says Reese. And they say something like, I'm looking for something real quick, like right now, within the next 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's just straight efficiency. She goes on to say, if he texts you before midnight, he actually likes you as a person. But if he texts you after midnight, it's just for your body. 
It's just for your body. One guy said this. He said, I hooked up with three girls thanks to the internet off of Tinder in the course of four nights, and I spent a total of $80 on all three girls. See, to me, this is worse than, than uh, prostitution. You know why? Because he only had to spend 80 for three, and all he had to do is take them out on a deal. Now they believe in the inner cities that if you take a girl out because of the Tinder culture, the dating app, if you take a girl out for dinner, that means you're paying for sex. So now it's expected. Well, notice that meal is less than prostitution. It's less than prostitution, right? This one woman said, I had sex with a guy and he ignored me as I got dressed and I looked back over on the bed and he was already back on Tinder searching for the next sex partner. That's the culture we're called to minister in. Now, I know if you're following Christ, that's not what you want, right? You don't want that. You want what God has for you. But I'm going to tell you how terribly formative these environments are. Dating apps, they're designed to manipulate your emotions, to release dopamine in your brain for you to swipe as fast as you can to create a false sense of self-worth and security, yet detaching you from really what God wants out of you. And I just applaud our young people because if you can stand in this culture with a Christ-like strength and say, I'm going to stand in the midst of that as a countercultural testimony to the world, and you, you wait and find a godly spiritual partner, God can use your testimony greatly. He can use your testimony greatly. So who am I becoming for participating in this practice? Well, most people date out of three primal reasons. Number one, loneliness. Number two, sexual desire. Number three, pride. I just want to be with someone, Pastor Craig. I can't be by myself. Or number two, I'm just on fire. I got to let this out. Or number three, I wonder how many people I can get so I can build my resume, so I can feel prideful. And what these do is they form us in a way that's different from how we should evaluate people. I'm going to go back to my boy C.S. Lewis for a minute. He wrote a book called Four Loves, and he talks about the four Greek words of love. And this is fascinating to me. Eros, or eros, is what we call erotic love. Storge is what we call, uh, I call it nostalgic, enjoyable love. Go have fun. Do something together. You know, whatever. Uh, Philia, or what we call phileo, is brotherly love, friendship love, city of Philadelphia. And then agape is other-centered, self-sacrificial, give myself to another person love. Now, in our culture, what's happened is we are formed in viewing people erotically. So I look at their body, I look at who they are, the first love I get to is eros. And then what happens? If I can get them in my bed, then I'm gonna get some fun out of them. So we're gonna go do something fun, we're gonna have some kind of moment together. And then, only then do I start thinking, oh, should I build a friendship with them? Or were they just a hookup? And it's, oh, if I should build a friendship with them, then after the friendship develops long enough, then I start thinking, oh, well, maybe I can agape them. But you know what? It's forming our loves in the wrong way. To be a Christ-like disciple is the exact opposite. The first filter you have is agape. I'm gonna posture myself in sacrificial love. I'm gonna posture myself saying, I'm in love with Jesus and I'm ready to give my life to another person. In fact, Ephesians 5 says, husbands, agape your wives. Self-sacrificial, other-centered love. And then then we ask the question, hey, can we develop a friendship? How can we find common ground? Can we develop this friendship? Can we spend time together? Then we say, hey, let's go have some fun. Let's have some enjoyment. And if that compatibility and suitability works, then we say, let's put our bodies together. Let's get married. Let's have sex one with another. But look, when you reverse the loves, you commodify people. And when you restore the loves, you value people. You value people. You value people as made in the image of God. And one of the things I get asked, I ask all the time, and I've asked my wife, because I've been a, a pastor over young people for some time, why in the world are there so many beautiful, godly, single women in our church? And then the thought hit me this week. Because men have been formed by our culture to evaluate women by one factor, and that is, is she hot? So as a result, men can't 
develop the capacity to see the possibility of beautiful women that are all around them. And what happens is when they're in their loneliness, they resort back to the harem, to the porn, to the masturbation. They turn within, which creates shame cycles. And when you have a shame cycle over your dead body, you're approaching a godly, strong, confident girl in our church. You don't have the confidence. You're too intimidated. Why? Because you're in the midst of shame. So the question is, we need a different dating culture in our church. Dating ultimately leads us to the category that I'll finish with, and that's premarital sex or what we call cohabitation, living together before marriage. Now look, if you're new with us, the things I'm teaching today are for here, for, for believers. So please understand, if you're not a believer, just use today as a way to maybe see what we believe as Christians. But I'm in here in no way to try to make any moral judgments about your life. But I am trying to bring clarity as to what Jesus expects of us as followers. So premarital sex and living together forms a relationship that Jonathan Grant in his breathtaking, why haven't you read it, buy it now, get it on Amazon Prime this afternoon, get it sent to your house tomorrow, book called Dating or Divine Sex. Amazing text. He says that cohabiting relationships are subprime relationships. This is what he said. He said if intimate relationships were mortgages, we might call these subprime commitments. They're high-risk projects of little or no collateral activity or security, I should say. Unfortunately, just like subprime mortgages, these relationships are designed to fail. Look what he says about people who live together before marriage. This is the stats. He says one in five uh, cohabiting relationships end in marriage. Uh, cohabiting significantly increases the likelihood of divorce. Women who cohabit multiple times before marrying will uh, divorce twice as frequently. Serial monogamy, that is the string of consecutive sexual relationships, actually hinders eventual marital satisfaction. While sexual experience before marriage is a good indicator for an increased likelihood of unfaithfulness within marriage. Now you say, why does that make sense? You want to tell you why that makes sense? Because if you spent your entire single life constantly feeling the chase and the tension of the desires and saying no to the desires and yes to Jesus, then what happens? You develop the capacity, the insight, the patterns to be able to say no to it outside of the marriage relationship. But if you have your whole single life led into it and led into it and led into it, you, listen, I have compassion for you because you have literally not developed the instincts, capacities, pathways or patterns to make you faithful in marriage. You've not developed them, so you have to get on an acceleration work to try to develop them. Now, when followers of Jesus do this, we call this sexual fraud. You know what sexual fraud is? It's when you promise with your body that which you won't pay with your life. You promise with your body what you won't pay with your life. First Thessalonians 4, he said, don't take for granted or advantage of a brother or sister with your sexuality. So I've given you other formulas that I think end in defeat. Let me give you in closing what formula I think God uses to form us, and that is a Christian vision of sexuality plus the power of the Holy Spirit plus individual and communal practices equals the restoration of Jesus in my sexuality. Equals restoration. We get this vision of what sex is. We commit ourselves and submit ourselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We pattern our bodies in ways that delight Him, not grieve Him. That's why in Romans 7, 6, it says we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Listen, the goal of God for your life is not sin management. The goal of God is spirit abundance. Spirit abundance. Led, guide, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So individual formation, come on team, looks like this. And we say, oh, that looks amazing. But if I'm honest with you, this is really what it should look like. It's messy. If I'm trying to live faithfully, it's not easy. It's not easy. This is messy. It's hard creating a culture in our hearts that's countercultural. 
But can we all agree that we need rightly ordered desires and rightly ordered hearts? We need not only individual formation, but we need communal formation. So that means we have to be communities, listen, who, yes, we have boundaries, but we also are communities of joy. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. 1 Corinthians 5, we'll get into it more. It's not our job to tell the world how to be the world, but it is our job to help the church be the church. So we as a counterculture have to be a joy-filled center. We got to retrain our friendships. We need to reclaim them, that our churches are places of joy. Why? Because carnal friendships are based on affinity. Worldly relationships or friendships are based on usefulness, how we help each other, but spiritual friendships are based and designed to follow and help follow our call in Jesus. But we should be a place of disciplines and joy because it's actually the joy of the Lord that's our strength. Joy is what suppresses these basic instincts. This is my favorite quote of the day I give you. A neurobiologist have shown that while most brain development stops sometimes in childhood, the brain's joy center, located and observable in the right orbital cortex, is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. As Dr. James Friesen said, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. Now watch this. He goes on to say, it guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. It's the, and serotonin. It's the only part of the brain that overrides the main Drive centers like food and sexual impulses and terror and rage. And this is a neurobiologist. He said, without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to feel the deficit. So I met with the leaders of Dwelling Place, and I've actually changed my title from co-pastor. My new title is Joy Center Cultivator and Overseer at Dwelling Place Church. Why? Because I want our church to be full of joy, folks. I want people that are broken in their sexual sin to come through those doors and feel that there's life in here. There's something different in here. There's joy in here. It suppresses all the carnal instincts because there's joy. There's joy. Now, some of you, you've been sitting here with an ache in your belly and you're getting these images that you've been trying to forget for years. And you're feeling accused. And you're thinking, I'm a sexual failure. Or I've been abused, Craig, or promiscuity. Listen to me. Jesus has compassion for people caught in the struggle. And when a woman was caught in adultery, you know what he did? They had hands to stone her. He said, who is without sin, cast the first stone. They dropped the rocks and leave. You know what he did? He drove a wedge between the accusers and the person so that he could create space for the, his mercy to touch her. I'm here to tell you, I don't care what sexual brokenness you've gone through. I don't care what the enemy has told to you. I don't care what lies have been, have been thwarted in your mind. There is a Jesus who can literally drive a wedge of heaven between the accusatory voices in your brain and mind. And he will drive a wedge between you and the accusation. He will create a safe place for his mercy to fill you, for his compassion and for his grace to transform your life. I was reminded of a Japanese form of art called kintsugi. Kintsugi is interesting. It takes broken things and through the addition of costly metals produces beautiful things. Now in the Western world, we lose value when things are broken. But kintsugi method, it's a different philosophy. It's not replacement. It's about restoration. And they take the cracks and they fill it with gold. And now that dish is a testament of its history. And I love this vision of human sexuality. These dishes are now one of a kind. You can't mass produce these. They have to be made by an artist by hand. 
And when they get done making them, they have more value than they had before they were actually broken. Why? Because they have the value of gold in them. You have the value of the blood of Jesus. And I want to tell you, you say, Craig, I'm broken sexually. You have no idea how many people are sitting on your road right now whose lives were absolutely ravaged and and torn apart by sexual immorality. And Jesus has put them back together again. And if you were to look at them honestly, you would see gold between all of their cracks. Why? Because Jesus is no respecter of persons. He can do it for you. It just means that you have got to understand Jesus can make you a pure and spotless bride. He can. He can. So today I want to invite you to the mercy of Jesus. Our church, every church has to make a decision about the kind of church we're going to be. We either concede to the values of our culture and give in, or we believe in the crazy restorative power of Jesus. And I would tell you, as long as I'm the pastor and this man's the pastor of this congregation, we are going to believe in the restorative power of Jesus. Is it foolish? Yep. Just as foolish as following the world's cultural values. You just pick which foolishness you want to believe. The foolishness of a Jesus who can restore every part or to concede to the cultural values and fall into dysfunction. Greater despair. There's no neutrality. You're either being shaped by the sexual revolution or you're shaped by the scandalous love of Jesus. You can't stand in the middle. You're being formed by one or the other. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.